Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be in verses 13 through 20 today. Um, I was trying to think through how I wanted to, to get into this because, and I've said this before, and so some of you will know this. A lot of times I feel like I have a lecture prepared until I come up with the right intro. And once I have the right intro, then it becomes a sermon. Uh, like I just don't, it doesn't, it doesn't come together in my brain until I kind of get, how am I going to get into this? How am I going to, what, what's the metaphor? Or what, how is it that I'm going to connect us to kind of get us into this passage so that we feel, so that we, we feel like we're connecting to it in a certain way? And I was thinking about this last night as I was going to sleep, and then I woke up this morning, and, I was, and it just kind of hit me. It's like, this is the way I want us to connect to this, because I want us to... I want us to feel the magnitude of this because we're just going to see an interaction where Jesus is going to be chatting with his disciples. Uh, he's going to have this conversation, and it's easy to just say, oh, they had a, they had a chat, and th- he asked them some questions, they gave him some answers, and they talked about it. And that's great, but, but the conversation that they're about to have in Matthew chapter 16 is one of the most important conversations that we're going to see happening in Matthew. This is, this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. This is the moment where all of this kind of becomes real, where all of it really starts to to reveal itself for who it is. And and the best way that I could think of this is like when you're watching a movie, right, the the most important part sometimes is when you realize who the identity of a particular person is, right? Like you're wondering all this time, maybe it's some, some mystery or... Maybe it's, if you're me, it's what was the most important plot twist of your childhood? And it came, of course, at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) Right? Sorry. Spoiler alert. I don't feel like a spoiler alert is really warranted on a movie that came out that long ago. But, hey, spoiler alert. So, all this time in... In this movie, you've had Luke fighting against Darth Vader. I got to take him down. He's evil. He killed my dad and all of this. And then you get to the end and you get to that one iconic line that even those of us who haven't seen the movies yet probably already know, right? He says, he says Obi-Wan told me enough. He told me you killed him. And he says, no, I am your father, right? And that was like... No, that's impossible. Sorry, I can keep going. Would that help? Would it help if I just went ahead and finished the movie for you? No, no. But he says, I am your father. And the big, so, so this, huge, this huge shift in the way that, sorry. Am I embarrassing you right now? Okay, good. Okay, so this huge shift, though, in the way that you view their relationship, once you realize exactly who Darth Vader was, once you understand the, the enormity of what his identity is, right? And this happens a lot in, in all sorts of movies. It's not, until, it's not until one character fully understands, I know you for who you really are now, that the real, the real plot kind of comes together, or you reach some sort of, some sort of point where maybe two relationships ever, or two relationships come together. It's like, I get this now, right? And, and, and so much of that scene, end of Empire Strikes Back, is Luke having to cope with this idea that I now have this knowledge of who you are that I am going to have to deal with now for the rest of my life. This is now, this is now the primary focus of the next portion of my life, is I have to deal with the fact that this character has revealed himself to be 
who he says he is. Right? So the mo- like, like so much of what we do is try to wrap our identity up in something or, or assume that we know everything about somebody's identity. And, and the conversation that the disciples are going to have with Jesus today is going to be focused over who Jesus is. This is the I am your father moment of Jesus' ministry to the disciples. This is where he says, we're going to see who you really understand me to be. Because if you, if you don't get that, if you don't really understand me for who I am, then, then we're at a point where we either we have, we have to just start over or break this off or something. I don't know what it would have been if they don't get the answer right, if they don't really understand who Jesus is. But what we're going to see is Jesus is going to kind of propose this question, and then one of the disciples is going to stand up and step to the front and answer that. So if you'll go ahead and turn, you're probably already there. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read verses 13 through 20. It says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. I will give to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. There is a lot of stuff in here. But, but one of the things that it says, first off, and, and I'm just going to say this briefly, is it talks about this region that they were coming into, Caesarea Philippi. This is still a Gentile region and a primarily pagan worship-centered region that they are in, which I think is really cool because we're going to see con- contrasted, you know, Jesus is saying, Look around, we're in a pagan place where they worship all of these other gods, and yet this is where I'm going to choose to establish with you my true identity. Well, we're going to really lock in and say, this is who I am. And we're going to really kind of see this contrast between, this is who the world is, and then we're going to kind of hone it in a little bit. This is who the world says I am, and then he's going to say, but who do you really say I am? Who am I really? So he's going to establish his identity here. And the way he asks that question, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is kind of Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's what he calls himself the most throughout the Gospels. Um, There were other titles that pointed more maybe directly to the Messiah, where it would be like Son of David or or even the word Messiah. Um, But but if he he called himself those things, if if he used a name for himself that established so much that he is the fulfillment of all this prophecy from the Old Testament, those names kind of carried with them the same idea of of political salvation that Jesus has constantly been trying to fight against. Some of those names would have been basically saying, I'm here to rule and reign over you now in the minds of the people, the way they understood the prophecy to be. And so this name, I think, really connects with the humanity of Jesus. Like he's trying to say, 
He's saying, I am, and we're going to see him establish, I am who the prophet said I would be. But at the same time, uh, he uses this name for himself in kind of a way to say, I don't want to confuse you too much now. And we see that at the end of the passage, right? Where even after all this, he's still telling them, don't go tell people that you get this. Don't go tell people that I am the Messiah. Don't say it yet because, because they're still not fully grasping why I'm here, what it is that I have to do, what my purpose, what my mission is. They're, they're here to try to establish me as an earthly king who's going to overthrow Rome and all of these things. And that continues to not be the point of Jesus's being here. And so we ask the disciples, you've been hearing things. You're talking to the people as we're going around here. Who are people thinking that I am? And all of these names that they come back with are, are Old Testament prophets, are the kinds of people that when they were reading, and, and, and we, we kind of do this too, right? Like we read, we read prophecy, even prophecy that really hasn't taken effect yet. So we're like looking at end time stuff. And we do this too, right? Like we're looking for, oh, so, so physical Elijah and Moses, they're going to come back. And so when they come back and they say, hey, I'm Elijah and Moses, that's when this is going to happen, and that's when this is going to happen, and that's when this is going to happen, right? So what, what Jesus is realizing is they're, they're trying to do very similar things to what we would do as we look at prophecy too. They're trying to say, all right, so it says... It says that, that Elijah's going to come back or Moses is going to come back or John the Baptist. Jesus said he was like the most important person to ever walk the face of the earth. So maybe this is him. Maybe this is still him. And, and they're trying to grasp at things that they understand so that they can maybe wrap their brains around who he is because, because he hasn't come in such a way that really fulfills the Messiah that they were expecting. So they're trying, to, they're trying to find pieces of prophecy to say, maybe it makes sense that these are the things that are going to happen right before the Messiah gets here. But they're not ready to fully accept that the Messiah has come as a humble carpenter who's not rich and powerful and here to take over and, and make them comfortable, right? So, so they're kind of, they're like in the ballpark. They're like, we think that you're somebody important. We think that you're somebody that God is sending this way, but we're still not ready to fully buy into this whole, you're it, you're the guy, you're the one that we've been waiting for. And so then, instead of just leaving it there, uh, and, and, you know, kind of like maybe we would expect and be like, well, you guys got to go explain who I really am, right? And then he explains, here's how you're going to, because this is how we would tend to approach somebody who has misinterpreted who Jesus is. We would sit there and say, so what are the ways that we can shift their focus or change the way they think. And he, he, he moves on. He says, okay, they don't get it, but, but you. It's time for you. Who do you say that I am? And he has this moment where he's going to kind of call his disciples to give an account for what they believe. Right? It's like, this is the moment where you get to, in front of God, say, who am I? Who do you really think I am? What is it that you're actually holding on to? What is, it, what is your hope? Are you, do you still see me as this political savior who's coming to, to overthrow Rome? Or do you really get why I'm here? And he's saying, it's time for you to give that account. It's time for you to testify about what you actually believe. I'm, I'm going to just mention this. I'm really excited because today we get to actually like use our baptistry and we're going to baptize people. Yes, we're very excited about this. This is going to be very cool. Yeah, you can, uh, I saw a couple people do this. 
There you go. There you go. So we're actually like, thank you to the sound booth for starting that. Uh, the sound booth and Nick. Uh, but seriously, we're really excited about that. And one of the cool things about baptizing is that you're going to get to hear from people that are getting baptized why they're getting baptized and, and who Jesus is to them. We're going to be hearing very similar types of things. And, and it's just so cool to see how different people say, this is who Jesus is and this is how he's changed me. And so his disciples are kind of being called to account. And he's saying, you've been around me long enough. What do you say? He's turning it around on them. Who do you say that I am? This is kind of their moment. And so Peter, who's a lot like me, Peter speaks first. And we see this a lot. Whenever, whenever the group is being represented, Peter's the one who kind of steps to the forefront and speaks on behalf of the group. This isn't just Peter. This is Peter revealing how he believes, but I think it's also Peter on behalf of everyone else stepping forward and saying, this is who we believe you to be. Now, now the rest of the interaction is going to be very focused on Peter, but, but you have to imagine that he's, he's speaking. On, nobody's stepping up and saying, that's not what I believe. So he's kind of representing the rest of the disciples in this. And he says, and he says two things about him, and, I, and both of them are very important. He says, first, you are the Christ. It's worth noting, this is the first time that Jesus has been called Christ audibly in Matthew. Matthew has referred to him as Christ as part of his narration, but this is the first time that out loud it has been spoken, you are Christ. Christ is the term uh, Christos, which is kind of the translation of the Hebrew for Messiah, which means anointed. So what Peter is saying is, you are the anointed one. This idea of the anointed one was one that the Jews had been looking forward to for a long time. He was the one who was like a king, right? So, so if you think back to the Old Testament, whenever, whenever God was establishing, you will be the king. Uh, he sent a prophet to anoint Saul. And then the prophet went and he anointed David, right? We see that these are the people that God is saying, I am picking you. I am choosing you. You are the anointed one. You are going to fulfill, fulfill my purpose and you are going to rule and reign over these people. So to use the word anointed one, for Peter to call Christ the anointed one, what he's saying is, you are the one who's going to fulfill that prophecy that was made to David thousands of years ago when he said, I'm going to establish your throne and it's going to last for forever. Right? That promise, that promise that God had made to David was the hope that Israel had been holding on to all of this time. Even when they were sent away into captivity, even when they came back, but then they were overtaken again and different, different countries were, were, were moving in and taking over and ruling over them. And they didn't really have firmly established their own national identity. Even at these times when they're kind of at their weakest, their hope was that God promised that we're going to have a king who's going to sit on a throne and reign forever. That was the fact. That was the, that was the promise that they held on to so tightly. So when Jesus says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are the answer to the hope that we've been looking forward to for years, for our lifetimes, for our parents and our grandparents' lifetimes. As we've been begging, God, come do something, come save us. That's you. He's saying, you are the fulfillment of all of that prophecy. 
But he goes on and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The fact that he is calling him the living God, again, think about it. They're in a region filled with pagan worship. He's saying, we are surrounded by, by things that are worshipped that are inanimate objects. We're surrounded by idolatry. We're surrounded by people worshiping things that just simply are not real. They do not exist. But you, you are the son of the living God. A, a God who is actively at work. A God who is actively moving. A God who is actively sovereign over his creation. And he's saying to Jesus, you are the only one who has this unique father-son relationship with the creator of everything. So it's not just that he's the fulfillment of the prophecy. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. And he is the real one true God. Meaning that he has the power. He has the authority. He has the ability to see through that this prophecy is fulfilled. So it's not just that he says, I think you're the one that we've been looking forward to. But I think you're the one that we've been looking forward to. And you have the ability to prove yourself right. You have the authority to make these things happen, to fulfill these prophecies. So I want us to understand how big a deal this confession is from Peter. Because he's saying, we've been missing the point all along. We've been looking for a political savior. We've been looking for somebody who's going to overthrow and reign for us now. And he's saying, all these years, all my life, I've been looking for the wrong thing, but now I see you and I know you and you are it. This is a huge confession that Peter is making. And it's not unlike the same confession that we make when we're saved and we admit, wait, you're, you're all that I've ever needed, Jesus. You're the one that I need to put my hope in. You're the one who is powerful and mighty, created everything. You're the one. So, so I'm not saying this is like Peter's moment of salvation because I think Peter's been saved ever since Jesus called him when he said, hey, come follow me. Right? He's called him to himself already. But, but this confession is kind of that moment where it's like we get to see what that light bulb moment was like for Peter when he got it. And this interaction here, I think, is encouraging to us because it's like he's confessing this. He's saying this out loud. He's being called to give an account for what he believes, just like we as the church are today. So he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, and I'm in verse 18 now, or sorry, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is an important thing for us to realize. Peter didn't come to this conclusion on his own. Jesus says, you didn't just stumble upon this. He's saying, because we realize all these people have been around Jesus just like Peter. Why is it that they don't understand who Jesus is and Peter and the rest of the disciples do? Why is it that they're able to understand the truth? He says, it's because my Father has granted you this knowledge. You would not have understood this if God had not intervened and opened your eyes to see me for who I truly am. It was a gift given to him by the Father. 
And he's contrasting this against, because, right, because remember he says, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? He's contrasting the difference between people who have had their eyes open and people who are just kind of taking guesses, stabs in the dark. Maybe he's this guy. Maybe he's this guy. Maybe he's this guy. Because the point that he's trying to make is, my father thought so much of you that he wanted you to understand who I am, and he gave you this understanding. I'm going to come back to that idea in just a few. As he's saying this, uh, Jesus calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. So Simon, son of Jonah. He, he kind of emphasizes the, his whole name, I think, to try to establish kind of Simon's humanity. Like he's saying, you're a guy who's the son of a guy, who's the son of a guy, who's the son, like you're a guy, you're human. So that when he contrasts and gives him this new name, but I say to you, and I tell you, you are Peter, right? When he gives him this new title, I think he's establishing that just like Peter has been given this special revelation by God to understand who Jesus is, he's also given him this new identity that he finds in Christ. He's no longer just the son of a guy who's the son of a guy who's the son of a guy. He's somebody that, that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to do something with you. You are somebody that I have given a new purpose, a new mission, a new name. Because that name, right? The names are what we wrap our identity up in. That's who I am. If I say, who are you? Well, I am a Clemens. What does that mean? You probably already know. It probably means I talk a lot. It probably means I interrupt you, right? These are, these are things. That, if you come to dinner at our house and, you've, and you're a quiet person, you will be overwhelmed. Like these are things that are true because that's just kind of how we as Clemenses have interacted our whole life, right? I've said it before. It's like we tend to try to anticipate the end of somebody else's sentence to make sure that we get the next one. So we go ahead and start talking just a few seconds early. Uh, but, but, like, our identity is wrapped up in, in kind of our family name. Like, we, I mean, I wasn't going to do a second Star Wars reference, but I'm going to. So, so, like, everything is wrapped up in a name. So, it's really significant. Spoiler alert, again, sorry. Uh, it's really significant that none of the new characters that we were given in Star Wars Episode Seven, we know, we know the, their last name, right? Because they want to leave us saying, who are these people? What is their identity? What's their significance? Who are they related to? All of these things are wrapped up in who they are. Is Ray's last name Solo? Is Ray's last name Skywalker? Is Ray's last name Kenobi? <coughs> these are the things that I think about people. But... But, but the answer to that question, who is this character, affects everything about the plot for the next movie or the next movie or wherever they go from here, however much money Disney wants to make, right? So the fact that Jesus is saying, think about your name, your human name. I am giving you a new name. With that new name comes this new definition completely of who you are, right? It is significant that he is calling him a new name. He's giving him a new title because, because out of that is coming kind of the intended purpose that God has for him. Why God would have revealed this knowledge to him. Because it's not just, hey, you get to know this about me. It's you get to know this about me and there's something for you to do with that. 
Let's keep reading. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter obviously being uh, similar to the word for rock. So here's the thing. This interaction can have several different meanings. And as I was reading, they're like, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, but it's probably this. And the more I read it, I'm like, actually, all of these kind of have, I think, a little bit of, make a little bit of sense. So I'm going to kind of pull from a bunch of different ways that you can read this passage, because I think all of these lead us to some truth. The first thing is that he's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter being, when he says on this rock, he's talking to Peter, he's talking about Peter. And he's saying, Peter, you're going to play a, a really big foundational role in the birth of the church. Like, you are going to be an important person. And if you've been coming here on Sunday nights, as we've been reading the book of Acts, you've seen that. That once, that once Jesus started establishing his church, once the Holy Spirit came, it was still Peter who was stepping to the front and saying, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about who he is and what he has been doing and why it is that he was here. And we see the church growing in huge numbers as a result of Peter stepping forward. But it's not that Peter is going to be the end all. Like he is going to be the most important person in the church's history. Because that is always and forever going to be Jesus. Because, because if you, and, and this is the problem with, with taking this to be only about Peter too far. If, if you establish that this is it, this is the only thing it can mean. He's talking about Peter, and, and on Peter I'm going to build my church. And you establish this one human being a little bit too strongly, you end up with a pope. Which is exactly where we got a pope. Because they said, look, it's all about Peter. So we're going to say Peter's the most important person. And he's going to hand off his leadership down the line. And, and that's a little bit of where I think the Catholic Church got a little bit off on its interpretation of what Peter's role was at the foundation of the church. So we don't need to overstate that Peter is important because if you look at the book of Acts, about halfway through, we stop seeing Peter. The focus shifts completely away from Peter and we follow Paul the rest of the way, essentially through the rest of the New Testament. So it's not about Peter. It's always been and always will continue to be about Jesus, but Peter will play a big role in the establishment of the church after Jesus is done. The second thing that it could be, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This could be talking about Peter's confession that Jesus is Christ. It could be that, that Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you get it. You've confessed that you believe in me. This faith that you're showing is what the church is going to be built upon. It's going to be built upon people who are understanding the reality of who I am, and the purpose for my being here. So Peter's confession, the type of faith that he's showing is what the church is going to be established on. And one last option is that Jesus is actually talking about himself. So like he's saying, on this rock, and he's referencing himself. I'm going to build my church, like on top of the sacrifice that I'm going to make, this understanding that you have that I am the anointed one, I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies, this, this thing that you're saying you're putting your faith in, on top of this, the church will be built. And I think all of these carry some weight, and I think all of these kind of, a step, kind of, kind of fill out the why this conversation is so important. 
But here's the thing. This conversation, even if, even if Jesus is really just wanting to emphasize, Peter, you're going to play a really big role moving forward. It's still not about Peter, because what does he say? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Right? It's always been and always will continue to be Christ's church. This is Jesus' church that he has been building and he continues to build. No matter how many things we may try to do in this building, in this physical space to try to make it feel a little bit more complete or a little bit more comfortable or a little bit less like stainy on the floor or whatever it may be. No matter what changes we may try to make to this, that is not building the church. Jesus is building his church and he's bringing, he's drawing people into this place with the truth of the gospel. So he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's saying that there is no amount of evil, there is no amount of death that can defeat my purpose and my mission here. It cannot happen. And I think, and especially when you look into the conversation that he's going to have with them starting next week where he's going to really start to focus on the sacrificial nature of his being here. Jesus, has, Jesus is going to prove this very point to us in as obvious a way as he can by overcoming death himself. He's saying, I am overcoming death, I am overcoming sin, and the church will do the same because I'm going to make sure that that happens. And we're going to see that Jesus has the power and the authority to do that. So what does it mean when he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Does that mean that he's saying to Peter, you get to pick who's saved and who's not saved? I don't think so. Thank you. Thank you for that, audible, that quiet but audible no. I think what he's trying to say here is, when I am done here, when I go back to sit down beside my father, when my work is finished, I'm going to leave you with the truth. I'm going to leave you with the gospel. The gospel is the key to the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to leave you with the one message that brings hope and salvation. That I am the one who fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies. I am the one who sacrificial death will overcome sin. And will make possible reconciliation. Will make possible the, the building of a church. Will make possible the drawing of people back to God. And fixing this relationship that has been severed by sin for so long. And I think what he's telling Peter is, I'm going to give you, you're, you're, you're being given the answer. To all of the things that these people have been asking for. They want hope. They want salvation. They want a king. You have that king. I am that king. And you are going to be able to show them who that is. You are the access point that God is going to use to draw so many people into the family of God. So why is it important that we read this? How is this helpful for us as the church today? I have, I have three things. 
I have three things that I hope that we could all, all glean from this. Number one, don't take for granted that you are a recipient of the understanding of Christ's identity. Because you know who he is, and I say that, maybe I should change that. If you know who he is, if you fully understand who Jesus is, if this is real to you, you know that because the Father wanted you to know. Does that amaze anybody? Like, like you specifically, like he was thinking, I want that person to know who I am. I'm going to reveal myself to them. And that's you. We should be amazed by this idea because God wanted to have a relationship with us. He gave us this understanding. If he did not do that, if he didn't want to do that, we wouldn't know salvation. So do not take for granted your understanding of this. That is a thing that should drive us to worship. That is a thing that should drive us to celebration. That is a thing that should drive us to be so openly excited about this because the creator of everything wanted us to know who he is. Second thing, you are a part of God's plan as he builds the church. We are all in on this. If you are saved, he has added you to the church and he is going to use you as a tool, as he continues to build his church. This, again, should not mean that we get all, you know, kind of puffed up and think, oh man, look at what I'm doing as I build the church. Because it's not about us. It's not being built because we're saying the right things, because we're doing the right things. It's being built because he's building it. But, but don't miss the fact that you are part of that. He is using you to build the church. How? Third thing. You, have been, you also have been given the gospel to take into the world. The only way the world gains access to God is through the truth of the gospel, which God has seen fit to give to you. I am not saying that, if you say the, that it's because you say the right or the wrong words that somebody or does not get saved because we've seen that established again and again and again that God is the one who's giving that understanding. But what I am saying is that he says to Peter, you've been given this truth and this truth is the thing that saves. This is the reality of who I am. This is the message. This is the mission. And we have been given that as the church. And it is through the telling of the gospel that people come to understand who Jesus is. That's his, that's his vehicle. It's not that we came up with, well, maybe we should evangelize. That'll probably help God out. No, he said, here's the message. Go take it to the world. This is the way he sees fit. This is how he wants to establish salvation through the telling of the gospel, through the mouths of the people of the church that he is establishing. So you have been given this truth. You understand this truth. You're hearing these words and you're like, yes, I believe these things. I agree with these things. I'm all in on these things. Then it's on us who have that. We are the ones holding the key, right? Uh, 
think through the person tied up on the train tracks, right? And they've got, like, they're, like, tied down. They've got locks. You've got the key. What are you going to do? You're going to put the key in your pocket because you don't want to offend them with the fact that you're saying, I have the only way out for you. And that they're going to get, you're worried that they're going to get offended that you're saying, this is the only way that you're not going to get run over by that train. Or are you going to take the key and be like, let me, let me, I, I have the answer here to your conundrum. Right? That's essentially where we are. We have the one answer for hope. We have the one hope of salvation. We have the one true king. So what are we going to do with it? Because, because the gospel is not going to fail, right? He says this. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. What do we have to fear? Nothing. What do we have? The truth of the gospel. So what should we do with it? We should aggressively take it with us wherever we go. And we should aggressively seek to share this truth with anyone and everyone that we can because we know what the hope is. And we need to pray that God would bless that message and that he would give people better understanding of who he is, that he would reveal this truth to him. So let's pray for that now.